nutrition, gut health, mental health, hormones, and so much more. These all play roles in sustainable weight management. So I scour the globe for top experts in fitness, health, and weight loss to bring to you this podcast. So take a seat and enjoy the ride. So everyone, welcome back to the Zico Health Show. This is weight management expert, Narado Zico Powell. And I have a long lost companion for you today, Dr. Tanya MD. Now, I want to quickly give you a story of this because when I was new in my journey, as far as you know, helping others and helping myself, I was talking about leaky gut. Can anybody listen to my story? They know about healing my gut and how it improved my asthma and so on and so forth to where I'm no longer on medication. But when I was posting about leaky gut, Dr. Tanya said to me, why are you posting about leaky gut? And I was like, well, the books I read talked about it and it seemed to help me, but that's really all I can tell you. Now, years later, we know a lot more about leaky gut and we've studied and we've shared information over the time, but that's when our communication started. So where now she's written about me on her blog, she's on my podcast, see how things work out. Now, Dr. Tanya has a lot of experience and we're gonna talk about so many things in this show. We're gonna talk about holistic health. Of course, we're gonna talk about weight management. We're gonna talk about micronutrients and probably her favorite topic, movement. And so, so much more. So get ready for this episode. Dr. Tanya, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. And thank you for introducing me to the leaky gut. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I try to do my best wherever I can, wherever I can. So the platform is yours. My first question I love to ask. Tell us about yourself. Tell us about your journey. Tell about your practice, about your qualifications. Who is Dr. Tanya? So my name is Latanya Booker. I am a traditionally trained internal medicine MD. And I spent probably close to 10 years now um, doing inpatient medicine where I treat patients who are sick enough to be hospitalized basically. And one thing that I noticed is that most people who are hospitalized for things such as heart failure, diabetes complications, heart attack, strokes, etc., they tend to kind of end up in this vicious cycle of repeat hospitalizations, more medications, more uh, doctor's visits. And a lot of times these people weren't really getting better with more medications, more hospitalizations, more doctor's visits. So that prompted me to kind of switch my focus to what we call lifestyle modifications in medicine. And I recall even in medical school, when we learned to treat things such as diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, et cetera, even obesity, um, the first line treatment was actually lifestyle modification. Lifestyle modification includes um, changing your diet and moving more, being more physically active. 
So we use we were trained to counsel our patients in lifestyle modifications um, prior to even initiating prescriptions in a lot of cases. But one thing that I've noticed is that as demands on physicians start to increase uh, with pressures from administration, hospital administration, insurance companies, even sometimes unreasonable patient expectations, uh, physicians are kind of pinned into a corner and they have shifted to spending less time educating in lifestyle modification and just kind of quickly writing a prescription for a pill. And as a result, I think, you know, a lot of our patients are suffering and we have kind of ended up where we are now, where we have the sickest population that we've ever had. We have high uh, healthcare costs, costs, high prescription costs, et cetera. And unfortunately, uh, there are not a lot of people kind of benefiting from that. So that was very long, for a long uh, kind of segue into my, my whole point. Basically now I've shifted my focus from just treating chronic diseases in the hospital to training or educating uh, people so that they can um, eat a healthier uh, diet and maintain weight, but most importantly, become more physically active. So that's what I do now. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's a, that's a really, that's a really good way to explain what's happening with physicians because even myself included, sometimes I'll say certain things about physicians love to prescribe, they love to prescribe. Well, it's not like physicians are evil and they just get up and say, you know what, I don't have time for these people. I'm just giving them medications. No, there, there, there are reasons in the background that I'm not privy to and we're not privy to. So thank you so much for sharing that. And to, I wasn't going to ask that question, but since you mentioned expectations, I want to add on to this. What unrealistic expectations are you really talking to and how would you, how do you really deal with them? So when I talk about uh, unrealistic expectations, you have the uh, expectations that hospital administration or healthcare practice administrations, even insurance companies have on uh, physicians. They basically want us to see patients really quickly. They want us to do all this paperwork and they want us to um, basically keep everybody healthy, but they don't give us enough time. Sometimes they don't give us enough resources uh, to actually do that then patients have unrealistic expectations a lot of times as a result of the way physicians have practiced for so long. For instance, big example, whenever you get a cold or a cough, patients often have this knee-jerk reaction to want to nip it in the bud. But every cold, every cough, every runny nose does not require antibiotics. And we kind of ended up in a situation where we have antibiotic resistance, we have bacteria and things that are now so resistant to the antibiotics that we have available to us that they, we don't have anything to treat these diseases. And you would be surprised there are people that actually die from common like things like urinary tract infections because we don't have antibiotics to treat those diseases because of the antibiotic resistance, antibiotic overuse, et cetera. So that's one of the examples. Um, patients think or you know, patients have this expectation that they're supposed to get a prescription or that there's a magic pill to treat or cure whatever they're suffering from. And while yes, there may be something that I can prescribe that technically you know, is for your symptom, but that doesn't mean that that's what's best for you at that time. And like I said, the, the unreasonable expectation is 
that you as the patient don't really have to do much. You just need to call your doctor and have your doctor prescribe a pill. The truth is in a lot of situations, you know, if you have a cold or a runny nose, then maybe rest, hydration, um, good nutrition are the first line treatments. That's the first thing that you really need to do versus uh, getting a prescription for an antibiotic, which actually causes more problems down the road, especially regarding gut health, leaky gut, et cetera. Um, and other, uh, the other thing is like with certain uh, medical disease, medical problems such as uh, diabetes, cholesterol, obesity, um, there may be this unreasonable expectation that there's a pill because there are pills to treat all of those things that I just described. However, again, first line treatment is actually lifestyle modification, but that puts the onus on the patient to take care of uh, or to make efforts, et cetera. And sometimes these lifestyle modifications aren't easy. Uh, other times, you know, they don't result in quick um, turnaround times or quick results that you can see immediately. And then that causes, you know, the patient to be discouraged or feel like, you know, there's no hope. But the truth is in a lot of these chronic diseases, most of the burden actually does fall on you, the individual to change your practices, your daily habits in order to reverse these diseases versus me as a physician, just prescribing a medication to pretty much put a Band-Aid on it because a lot of times these medications don't even get to the root cause of the problem. So that, that, that's what I mean by unreasonable expectations. Are you familiar with um, Dr. Stephen Gundry? I am to the extent that he discusses or he has a specific product that I know of where he uses plant nutrients to reduce oxidative stress and to um, eliminate signs of aging. Um, but that's the extent uh, to which I know Stephen Gundry. Uh, so when I was first dealing with my health issues, I picked up a book called The Plant Paradox. And he was talking about leaky gut. And um, I had no idea what he was talking about. And I didn't believe it. And it may be because I'm just I'm Jamaican. I'm just a natural skeptic. But I started making changes and just some small changes that he recommended. And I started feeling better. I'm like, okay, might be some truth to this. because. Over the years, my practice has evolved and I take a three-sided approach. I look at science, but I don't just look at science. I cannot stand people say, always say to me, what does the science say? Everybody seems like they're a scientist for some reason. Um, but you can find science that says honey nut Cheerios is good for you, right? So in fact, my cousin is going to medical school. There's, it's still in her book of the benefits of honey nut Cheerios. That's another oh. benefits of wild oats. The benefits of oats and honey nut Cheerios, not the same thing. Right, okay? exactly. But somehow they specifically mentioned that. And I was like, okay, I see where this is going. So there's the science piece. Then there's the ancestral living. What did your ancestors do? Um, because we are, our ancestors did a lot of natural things that are so healthy for us that we don't do anymore, especially your ancestors. Because the enzymes that you have to break down certain foods, a lot of it comes down to what your parents and grandparents used to eat. So you don't have to go back thousands of years, right? And the third piece is the anecdotal piece. How does it make you feel? Right. Right? Every, guess what? We're animals. The doctor knows this. I know this. And now my audience knows this. We're animals. Animals can tell if something is good for them based on how they feel that's one of the ways if you eat pizza and ice cream and you feel like you're gonna die tomorrow and you can't use a bathroom hmm, 
if you if you drink too much and you wake up and you look at like your age 30 years and you feel horrible, hmm, those are signs. We don't have to be that bad. Just in the foods that you eat on a day-to-day basis, if you're having less energy, you have brain fog, all those things, the anecdotal piece is very important. So I combine those three for my clients, right? So when we get into the habit of saying, okay, I just want a pill, I just want a pill, hmm. You don't, you don't know what other problems you can be creating. And you said right. something on top of that. And I really want, I've never heard this before. I know about insulin resistance. I know about leptin resistance. You hint on it, but kindly explain what is antibiotic resistance. So antibiotic resistance is basically uh, pertaining to bacteria that actually to like to, to oversimplify it, they basically sample antibiotics in your body when you take antibiotics and they figure out how to basically continue to grow in spite of. So basically what happens is you may have, let's say E. coli, for instance, which is actually a common uh, antibiotic resistant organism. We all have E. coli in our gut, but the most, uh, the, um, the more we take antibiotics for things such as common cold, which is actually caused by viruses and uh, aren't it's not necessary to use antibiotics to fight viruses, okay? And when I say antibiotics, I'm not talking about antivirals. Those are two different things, but antibiotics such as the things that you take for um, bacterial infections, okay? When you continue to take those things, if you repeatedly take those things, um, then basically your normal flora or E. coli, for example, is able to sample that and become resistant. It's able to change its metabolism, enzymes, et cetera, so that now this particular E. coli is now not susceptible or cannot be killed or completely eliminated by the antibiotic that you're taking. And antibiotic uh, overuse is actually a common problem in the United States. So that's, that's what I mean when I say antibiotic resistance. That's really powerful. I'm going to tie that into something else that Dr. Gundry said that when you take antibiotics, you're literally dropping a bomb on your good bacteria. That is you're killing exactly everything. Right. So let's think about this scenario. Let's say I go into Robert's store, right? Because you don't know what I do in my free time. And I go into Robert's store and the cops show up, right? And they don't try to talk me down. They don't try to negotiate. They don't try to, you know, even see if they can, whatever they need to do. I'm not a cop. I don't know exactly how this works. <laughs> but they walk in and they just, no, they don't walk in. They just say, you know what? Bring in the army and they just drop a bomb and just kill everybody. That's what antibiotics do. Right. And what people have to understand is in your gut, you have good bacteria and bad bacteria that make up the normal flora, but they live in balance. And when you come and when you, you don't, when you eat a certain diet, what we call like the brown diet or beige diet, that doesn't contain what we call um, like plant or phytonutrients or uh, prebiotics is what I'm trying to say. That's the word I'm looking for. Prebiotics that you find in uh, plant foods, um, vegetables and fruits and things of that nature. Basically, when you just eat empty carbs and sugars, you allow for the overgrowth of the bad bacteria and the good bacteria start to go away. Same thing when you take too many antibiotics, you allow for the overgrowth of bad bacteria and the good bacteria goes away. And it contributes to an imbalance in your gut flora 
And as a result, you get things such as obesity. It's actually, con or it's actually one of the uh, factors that contributes to obesity. There's a specific bacteria that I can't name it right now, um, but when it is overgrown, it actually causes you to gain weight and have trouble losing weight. Um, so gut health is actually extremely important and you should not just take antibiotics willy-nilly. Anytime anybody tries to prescribe you an antibiotic, you need to second guess and question, hey, is this really necessary? Why is this necessary? Because antibiotics can be extremely disruptive to your gut flora and cause more problems down the road. Wow. You know what? I was just about to talk about SIBO, um, small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And you hit on that. And I was like, wow, that's fantastic. I'm not a medical doctor. So any corrections are going to be made by the medical doctor I have here, <laughs> just my caveat. But it's so funny because, oh, well, not funny. It's really more of a sad story. But yeah. we look at feeding the good bacteria in our large intestine and our colon versus the bad bacteria in our small intestine, right? And when we constantly feed the bad bacteria in our small intestine, then that can also lead to small intestine bacterial overgrowth. Right. That's just right there in the name. Right, so right. how do we do that? Well, first of all, and Dr. Zagunja always say, it's not about what you eat. It's first about what you don't eat. Eliminating exactly. crap. Right. Eliminating processed, um, the processed foods. If, it's, if, if nature made the plant, it's healthy. Right. If it's made from plants, oh, not as healthy. Right. Right. Um, so processed foods, and then also with processed foods, nothing in nature, nothing at all that I can find. If my things I'm wrong, go ahead and correct me. Comes with high fat, high carbs, and high protein. Right. Nothing. All together. Closest, you're absolutely right. Right. The closest you're gonna come would be nuts, mm -hmm. right? And that's even mostly unsaturated and saturated fat. Exactly. Has fiber. Right. And it has some protein, but not a whole lot. Right. And, and not, nuts are not okay. high in sugar. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So nothing in nature comes out of that because our bodies are not designed to break down foods like that. So then here comes the process of pro the problem with processed foods. So, yeah. So the second part of that now is now, okay, you're trying to eliminate, not saying you can't eat anything processed. If I say I don't eat processed foods, I'm lying. But you try to eliminate as much as you possibly can. Right. And then you start to feed the good bacteria that's in your gut. I posted something on my Instagram today about feeding good bacteria, fermented foods, probiotics for your body. And that's a caught up with people who talk about fermented foods because I've had arguments with my family telling them, stop taking probiotics. I say, are you eating, are you eating um, fermented foods? Are you eating stuff that are bitter? No. First of all, you don't know if the probiotics you're taking are live culture probiotics. Two, you don't know if it survives acidic nature of your gut. So, but when you get it from foods, all those things are happening. Right. It's nature's medicine. I don't know um, how much you believe in the Bible, but I do remember, because my aunt, she's, she's biblical, right? Mm -hmm. she, she goes to church every Sunday. And I asked her one day, I said, hmm, do you know what the Bible says about herbs? And she's like, no. In you know, in Genesis, they forced us to go to church as a child. I, for some reason, I remember these things. <laughs> and I said, uh, in Genesis, it says herbs are used for medicine. Mm -hmm. Herbs are used for medicine. The green of the earth, the herbs are used. For, and I'm paraphrasing a bit, but that's essentially what the story is, right? Is that it's used for medicine. So Eastern medicine, that we want to call it that, or ancient, more older medicine, been using herbs for so many years. And all of a sudden, we're acting like we never heard of this before. Right, right. 
And I think it's primarily because we, so Western medicine evolved into this practice where you diagnose a disease. So we have characterized all these different diseases and then we've studied them. And in, as a result, we've started to try to find cures, right? And our cures came in the form of pills and treatments, injections, et cetera, right? Um, but unfortunately, a lot of these diseases, you know, we never really address the root cause. Like these medications that we use, instead of saying, well, this is the reason this disease has developed, we just say, okay, well, you have this symptom and this disease, let's prescribe this pill. So we're really, a lot of times, just putting a Band-Aid on the situation. We're not really addressing the root cause. So the process that caused you to develop that disease in the first place is still pretty much going on in a lot of cases. We, you know, just kind of maybe mask the symptoms with a pill. That's what I think exactly. is happening in Western medicine. And a lot of that comes down to what you're saying, the expectations on the physicians. Some physicians have upgraded their knowledge. Um, my favorite physicians are those that take a, a combination approach like you. That's why I have people like you on the show. So were you going to say something? No, uh, one thing is it just, it's just interesting because as physicians, you know, we are, you know, we go through all these years of medical training um, and school and we learn like a few ways to kind of handle certain diseases. And then as new sort of literature comes out, you know, we are tested and retested on, you know, new ways to manage these things, but we're not really um, educated in lifestyle modification. Lifestyle modification is not really one of those things that is uh, pushed, you know, very, very often in the traditional Western medicine. So unfortunately, you know, these things kind of go by the wayside and like I said before, patients are actually suffering. So exactly. you have to, as you know, as us, we as physicians, we have to educate ourselves because the system isn't teaching us lifestyle modification. It's not teaching us about gut health. Uh, when you introduced me to gut health about two years ago, I tried to look it up and I didn't find any physicians talking about gut health. Like not even, no gastroenterologist, nobody. It was actually considered like voodoo, like, oh, why are we talking about this? But now we have a lot more information, but it's not, it hasn't really hit mainstream Western medicine yet. So you as a physician have to continue to educate yourself in these other sort of uh, practices and, you know, get this other information, like, you know, what, what it sounds like Dr. Gundry is doing, uh, the approach that Dr. Jason Fung takes to uh, treating diabetes, um, Terry Walls, how she talks about how she treated her uh, multiple sclerosis by changing her her diet and lifestyle so that she could um, heal her mitochondria. So, you know, if you aren't one of these people who is actually looking at the literature, because the funny thing is the research and the science and the evidence uh, has been there. It's been in the literature sometimes for years and not even years sometimes for decades before mainstream Western medicine even catches up and says, oh, well, maybe we need to start changing our practice. So as physicians, we really have to remain vigilant and seek uh, education and knowledge outside of what we're being fed by uh, you know, the powers that be. <laughs> that's a, the powers that be, the powers that be. That's a powerful insight. And 
this is going to take me into my next question because we're talking about holistic health. And I know that you are, I think, I know you're a runner. I know that for sure. And you love to talk about movement. So what role does movement play in holistic health? So movement does so many things. So holistic health is basically where you approach a patient um, and you take into consideration all or several different factors. You don't just look at a patient and say, well, you have this disease, so we're gonna do that. It's not a cookie cutter, one size fits all approach. It's very unique or your approach is very unique to the individual, okay? And it takes into account factors such as uh, lifestyle, genetics in some cases, socioeconomic status, um, and preferences in a lot of cases, you know? Um, and preferences in terms of, you know, what style diet or even sometimes religious preferences, but you basically take a whole, um, whole person approach to treating a specific disease or maybe even preventing a specific disease. Um, when it comes to movement, movement um, affects several of those factors. Like it can, um, it has a place in terms of your like social, like when you are physically active, it helps your, you, it forces you to become engaged in certain activities. So for instance, I'm a runner and as a runner, you know, you get involved in certain um, like running clubs, et cetera. So that helps uh, to keep number one, being involved in those running clubs helps to keep me kind of engaged and motivated and on track and physically active, but it also has a social component and a mental health component. So, you know, I'm, I'm sort of in contact with other people. I have this camaraderie that you don't get when you just kind of do individual training exercises. Um, there's also this mental health component um, so running or being physically active actually helps you to kind of put you in a better mood because you release endorphins. It also helps you sleep better. Sleep is one of the components um, that affects your health. It affects weight. Um, also, it helps to keep your cortisol or stress levels down. So movement affects so many different parts of the, the human to the point that it's extremely important. Not only um, does it have, you know, benefits when it comes to sleep, benefits when it comes to, you know, your social life, benefits when it comes to um, maintaining stress and your mental health, but also um, movement is, it actually, yeah, that's what, I'm sorry. It actually helps uh, joint health, musculoskeletal health. So, whenever like people who suffer from arthritis you have this inflammation in your joints but movement people say is uh motion is lotion for the joints i don't know if you've ever heard people say that but basically when you don't move your joints or you're not physically active it actually allows inflammation to sit in and that's where stiffness comes in and sometimes even pain so movement has so many benefits um and it, it's not just a, a single uh it's not just tied to one single benefit, basically. It helps with weight, helps with stress, helps with sleep, helps with uh, mental health. It has so many benefits beyond just the physical benefits. You know, the other day, I hurt my, uh, I hurt my leg playing soccer, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't really a really bad injury. Um, it's more because I forget that I'm old sometimes because I feel like I'm 20. And um, 
it wasn't really bad injury. It was right, right around my hip flexors, but I took, I never really stopped physically training. I put myself to my own little rehab for my joints, but I limit my movements. And mm-hmm. then I didn't play any soccer or anything that caused me to twist or something like that. So then this, about after about a month, I started feeling better. So I went out there and then played, but I was slowly getting myself back into it. And I was on the phone with one of my friends and he was like, uh, what uh, I, told, I told him I was playing soccer. He's like, didn't you injure yourself? You should rest, you should do that. He said, how long did you rest? I said, I don't know, I didn't really play in soccer for like a month. I didn't even tell him that I was weight training. Right. He's like, no, that's not long enough and so on and so forth. And that right there was a snapshot for me because that tells me what is wrong with our mindset. Mm. Because we think, oh, okay, I have an injury. I should stop moving. Well, what happens when you don't exercise and move? You actually weaken those joints and right. weaken those, those muscle fibers, right. which makes it longer for you to heal. Now, I'm not saying that if you're injured, you're just going to go out and start hopping and running around and doing backflips. That's not what I'm saying. Right. But taking a more steady approach, strengthening the area that's weaker, it's so important than sitting around doing nothing, absolutely. which can actually exacerbate the problem. Absolutely. That's absolutely correct. So certain injuries do require you to like fractures, for instance, you can't continue to move on a fractured joint or bone basically because it'll make the situation worse. Right. But in certain situations such as sprains or strains, then you do, you know, you, you, the sort of rest period is a lot shorter than if you have a fracture. And while you're resting, you can still be moving or still be active in other ways just kind of not participating in the strenuous activity that number one precipitated or could exacerbate or make the injury worse. So basically time actually does heal all. Um, so if you give it adequate amount of time, but then you still remain active in, you know, around other joints or other body parts, then that's even better. Now, this is a great segue because we talk a lot about movement and I knew that we were going to talk about movement for a long time. But now we're going to talk about nutrition. We're going to talk about food. Okay, honestly, nutrition is actually my favorite. (laughs) Oh, even better. Right, right. (laughs) Even better. All right. So let's start with my best friend, keto. Okay. Um, I'm not against keto. Actually, I'm cycling off my keto keto cycle right now. They're kind of double positive there. But um, I'm cycling off right now because I do use ketosis in um it when it when it needs to be used but that's because i understand my body and you know i'm a nutrition specialist so listen to me people because you go places but that's another story <laughs> um but let's dr tanya tell us about keto because people would say you know what i want to lose weight i'm just gonna cut my carbs i'm gonna try keto my uncle jim or aunt sally lost 100 pounds 150 pounds this is gonna work for me what do you have to say to those people So I have several thoughts about keto. Number one, keto is actually excellent for weight loss. Okay. Um, You know, I even did keto and lost probably a very large amount of weight in the the shortest time period than any of the other sort of um, like quote unquote diets that I ever tried. Right. Um, But keto is not for everybody and keto has a place. Um, And there are certain conditions where keto has um, can re- have great results and actually reverse certain diseases um, and is uh, can be an integral part of a lifestyle 
um, to, to treat or to even reverse certain diseases, right? Um, but it's not for everybody. And I really actually caution people who just use keto for weight loss, okay? Um, mainly because if you're just using it for quick weight loss, number one, it could be unhealthy for you, number one. Number two, um, it may not be sustainable is the, the, the next thing. And if you're literally just using it for rapid weight loss, but you have no plans to sort of maintain that type of lifestyle, then it may not, you know, you can lose weight and then gain it all back because we've even seen studies where that happens. The other thing about keto, I'd like to caution people, and I think we need to do more, a little bit more research into this, but people who attempt a keto, well, there was this study where they took um, young males, like 19 years old, completely healthy, put them on a keto diet. Uh, well, before they put them on the keto diet, they checked their cardiac mark markers. Um, and I don't remember them specifying which cardiac markers. It might've been like CRP or something like that. But, uh, so don't quote me on that but they checked their cardiac markers ahead of time and then they put them on a keto diet and then checked their cardiac markers. And then they put them back on a regular diet containing carbs, right? And at that point they checked their cardiac markers again and their markers went up after going back from a keto diet to a carb containing diet. So I say that to say, you know, it could be dangerous for people who are not committed to the keto lifestyle because now you are uh, putting your body under stress that may not be tolerated and may actually kind of worsen heart disease and things of that nature, uh, when, especially when you go from a keto diet to a carb-containing diet. So again, any, uh, anybody that's interested in undergoing a keto diet, I think that this is something that actually needs to be monitored by a nutrition and, uh, specialist and uh, maybe even a physician, depending on the situation, depending on what specific disease you're treating, what your goals are, because um, just because, you know, it's a, one of those fad diets or, you know, everybody's talking about it. And just because it helped your, your uncle lose all this weight, it doesn't mean that that's right for you. So keto has a place. I have a few things to add to that. I want Dr. Tanya to do most of the talking, but I, this part is going to take me a couple minutes. So the first thing I want to say is when, it, when we look at studies of keto and we look at the mental health aspect, because that's a big piece, like, you know, Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. mental, you know, um, even seizures and so on and so forth. I don't see enough studies on this and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that we're going to see more in the next in the next couple of years. Right. It's not just about ketones because ketones do have benefits for your brain, but also about what ketosis doesn't have, which is a lot of carbs, right? A lot of glucose. I don't hear us talking about that enough because we know that our mitochondria has well. Some of us know that our mitochondria have five pathways, right? So we're talking about. Um, Pathway two is where um, fat is based on um, the path pathway for fat, which is a low oxidative stress, low inflammation pathway versus one, three, four, and five, which is a, more, a higher inflammation, higher oxidative stress pathway, right? Now, that's important to note because when you're moving off into a keto diet, you're, you can be reducing oxidative stress and reducing inflammation, which can be the mental health component of it. But here's the caveat. 
this, the movement from a straight keto back to carbs or vice versa, our body has our bodies have specific enzymes to break down fat and break down carbs. Our bodies are highly intelligent. Our bodies will, will stop actually developing their enzymes if we're not feeding it certain foods. Mm -hmm. That's why the ancestral part of my practice is very important. Because if you if your parents are eat a lot more fat and protein, there's a high chance that you're going to be better at, at breaking it down, especially mm -hmm. if you continue that lifestyle. That's why when you take people from other countries and bring them to this in the U.S. or another country, they can't tolerate those foods. Their enzymes are different. So you take someone and say, okay, I'm just going to put them on keto. You know, the, of course, you've heard of the keto flu, right? Like you're going right, to die. Right. Well, why does that happen? Your body doesn't have enough right. lipase and other enzymes to properly break down fat. So you, you feel terrible. Over time, though, your body will start to develop those enzymes. He's like, you're going to feed me fat. I'm going to develop those, um, those enzymes to do that. Now, let's look at me. I just cycle off ketosis. I had no keto flu because my metabolism is extremely flexible. Right. And I have lipase and other fat um, enzymes to break down fat. And I also have amylase, another enzyme to break down carbs. So my body switch between both without any issues. Now, I don't experience, you know, when someone, once they get off the keto flu and they feel like the heavens are open up, <laughs> they feel like their minds are so clear, the angels are singing, everybody's dancing, you know, like the cartoons and stuff. And they feel like that because they actually or high sugar burners without enough lipase to break down fat. So once they transition over, they feel the benefits of ketones. I, however, feel exactly the same mm. because my body already has low inflammation and low oxidative stress based on my lifestyle. So I don't switch over. I don't, when I switch over, I don't feel like, oh my God, now I'm actually doing something good for my body. I've been doing something good for my body all year long for how long? So I don't have that change. So Keto can be beneficial in the short term, and our ancestors actually cycle keto in times of famine. They probably didn't call it ketosis. Right, right, exactly. Well, probably, I'm sure they didn't call it ketosis, but in mm -hmm. times of famine, you had, you had nothing to eat, you had to do what you had to do. And in the summer months, and think about how intelligent nature is. In the summer months is when high sugary fruits grow mostly. Now we don't know because we just have access to everything all year right. round. But our ancestors weren't eating apples and and pineapples and stuff in, in 20 degree weather. All right. But we're doing it, right? Because that's we we have access to this stuff all year round. That's where getting a calendar and eating seasonally is so important because nature tells you this is what you need to eat at this time. I tell my friends all the time, I don't I don't eat California grapes because I don't live in California. Exactly. That is exactly right. <laughs> now let's Go on a little bit more. Let's talk. Um, let's um, get more expertise from Dr. Tanya over here. Micronutrients. What are they? And what are, are some of them, of course? You know, you can describe them, but what roles do they play in holistic health and, of course, weight management? So, micronutrients. Oh, you're going to make me name them. And then, being the, the physician that I am, I'm like, don't quote me on that. But no. Things such as iron, um, zinc, um, what are some other micronutrients? Can you help me name them? The, magnesium. The specific ones that you need. Magnesium. Oh, God. Potassium. Yes. 
Um, basically, those are things that are necessary actually for cellular function. They're necessary for your enzymes to function properly. They are ne necessary for your immune system to function properly. They are necessary for so Sweet. many functions, growth uh, and uh, cell turnover and healing. Um, they are key and micronutrients are things that you need from the environment because your body can't make them. Okay. So you're, um, basically you take these in from your environment through the form of food. Okay. And there are certain foods that, you know, naturally are full of these, uh, micronutrients, um, such as green leafy vegetables, uh, seasonal local fruits and, and green, uh, other kind of pigmented vegetables, et cetera. Um, and like I said, those are necessary. It's necessary for us to eat those things um, so that we can get these micronutrients that our bodies can't make for optimal cellular function. So the funny thing is people think that we eat for pleasure and we really don't. We eat because that is our way of getting nutrients that our bodies can't make from the outside environment which is nature. And as you said before, um, based on where we live and based on seasons and based on, you know, the climate, the temperature, et cetera, um, nature will give us just what we need when we need it. So citrus fruits are winter, like we, they grow best or they grow in the winter months and we need vitamin C to help with our immune function, right? It gives it, it gives us vitamin, nature gives us vitamin C during winter months is what I'm trying to say. So it's very important for us to, like you said, eat seasonal and even specifically local when you can, because nature is trying, will give you what you need in that time if you just kind of eat from nature, basically. Wow, that is so true. I was here like shaking my head this whole time because I was enjoying what she was saying, because it's definitely true. And I really honestly don't have much to add on there, but Anyone listening to the show, within the earshot, rewind and listen to that portion from Dr. Tanya again, because that is really strong. Now, let's talk about men and women. And when I have a female on the show, which I tend to have most of the time anyway, I sometimes mm -hmm. like to ask this question, right? Because um, men and women face different struggles when it comes to managing their body weight. So what struggles do women tend to face differently than men? So women... I think one of the biggest sort of struggles or frustrations uh, that women encounter when they're trying to manage their weight is, you know, it can be a little frustrating that we don't drop weight as readily as men. You know, men may make one small change in their diet and lose like five pounds. And then we make a small or, you know, that exact same change in their, our diet. And, you know, we lose like one pound. It can be a little discouraging, but the difference is, you know, men and women have a different sets of hormones, right? And hormones such as estrogen, hormones such as testosterone. And, you know, even though when men and women have estrogen and testosterone, the balance is quite different, right? So as a result, we put on weight or our weight distribution is different from that of a man. And uh, our metabolism is a little different from that of a man. And even as we, you know, uh, go through different cycles in our lives, or, uh, you know, from menarche, where you start your period, to, you know, your 20s, to uh, when you go through menopause, 
the balance of our female hormones is different and that can affect the way we put on weight. It can also affect the weight or the rate at which we lose weight. So we can be doing all the right things at any different point in you know, our sort of cycle uh, or hormone cycle and it can affect the way um, we put on weight or lose weight. So I think that's kind of the biggest uh, struggle, the fact that you know men seem to, because of the testosterone, seem to put on weight different and they're able to lose weight a lot quicker. Um, but we have to deal with literally <laughs> every, what, uh, every 28 days, you know, we go through these cycles. And unfortunately, the hormone at any point in that cycle, the, the hormone levels, affect the way we metabolize fat or the way we process the food that we eat. Um, so yeah, we have like a different hormone struggle when it comes to trying to manage our weight than men do. And then don't even get started when you start going through menopause or even perimenopause, then the hormones are even more um, sort of in flux and affecting the way we put on weight or change weight, et cetera. So I think the biggest that's probably the biggest frustration slash challenge that women have when they're trying to manage their weight. It's just the hormone balances. And that's not even talking about hormones such as insulin or leptin or thyroid hormone and how they impact the way we um, process or metabolize fat or even you know, put on weight, et cetera. We still have all these other hormones, progesterone, estrogen, et cetera. And I, I forgot to mention cortisol. Cortisol is... Ugh, yeah. So basically we have a whole other hormone soup that we have to deal with and it changes and fluctuates on a 28 day cycle until you go I'm through the pause. I'm a big fan of soup. I don't know if I want any of that one. Though. <laughs> I don't know if you want our female <laughs> hormone soup though. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, uh, have you ever heard of the product Lumen? I feel like I mentioned this every show now. Say that. Who, who is it? Lumen. It's uh, L-U-M-E-N. No, I, oh, Lumen, a product? No, I've never heard of it. It's a breathalyzer. That's okay. the only one on the market. Before, it was only available to athletes and you hmm. know, the military. But now, you, you, when you blow into it, it tells you if you're primarily burning fat or burning carbs. Hmm. And then they give you a general guideline of food that you can eat to increase, you know, if you're a carb burner, fat, fat burner, carbs. And we, with keto, I, um, I'm a member of the Facebook group. Hmm. Um, and... Uh, I've had people come there from keto and I plateau, but they're like, I can't burn carbs. I'm like, well, this is why I'll talk about it working out. I'll talk about it nutrition. I'll say, follow women's guidance with this kind of workout. You'll be fine. So on and so forth. But that's not the reason I've been on keto for like a year or two years or long term. My body's not designed for that, but that's another story in itself. But Lumen, L-U-N, L-U-M-E-N, wonderful product. I believe, I wholeheartedly believe in it. In fact, I have a discount code for it is Zico Health, Z-E-C-O Health, gives you 10% off. I highly recommend it. In fact, anytime someone reaches out to me, want to talk about weight management, that's the first thing I try to tell them, go get you a Lumen because you might even save money and not having to work with me just by following their guidance. Right, cool. And Maria Fox, who um, is going to be on uh, one or two episodes before this one, um, she she's 51 years old. And from the age of 50 to 51, she lost over 70 pounds losing Lumen. Mm. And you talk about menopause and perimenopause and all that. And we talk about a lot about things because she's a she's a coach for them. So they talk about menopause. They talk about the different hormones, men versus women. And we um and they 
they help you not necessarily with your symptoms for your for your um, for your cycles, but when when she 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 walks people through okay at, this is what I experienced at different times in my life, mm-hmm. and that's huge. Now something I want to add to that though because once you purchase Lumen code Zico Health, go okay, go get you one. You um you go you are invited to the Facebook group. There's 17,000 of us, and a lot of people ask questions. I'm usually there throughout the day. Marie and other experts for them are usually there, you know, answering questions. And one of the questions I had to answer today was, uh, someone said, "I don't understand. I blew a two when I woke up, meaning that she's mainly burning fat. Mm-hmm. Haven't eaten any food. Um, at the end of my 16-hour fast, and I'm blowing a three. I haven't eaten any food. So three, now I'm burning more carbs. Where are these carbs? Why, why am I burning? Why am I burning carbs? I haven't eaten any food. Mm. And I explained to her, I said, the profiles of women and men are different. And the fasting windows for men and women are different. I generally don't recommend a fast for a woman, especially if you're just starting out, more than 12 hours. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot I can get into the reasons for that. Right. 12 to 14 hours is mostly ideal for women. Men can do 13 to 15 or maybe even 16. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But her profiles are different. She's like, well, I'm trying to maximize um, cell, um, you know, good cellular growth. And I know that at 14 hours is when you maximize. I said, well, that's a general number. And that's different, again, for men and women. Now, there are things that you could do where you can do a shorter fast throughout the week. And then a one week, maybe dinner to dinner or closer fast like that, right. instead of putting your body through stress. Because what's happening is that when, when you're blowing a three and you're still fasting, you're burning carbs, your cortisol is actually rising. Right. Your body is telling you that you need to eat. So and don't. Also, it could be from um, depending on the timing and depending on her insulin sensitivity overall. Like if she's insulin resistant, if she has trouble with her liver, the liver could also be just kind of releasing some of that excess stored uh, glucose if she is one of those people that's insulin resistant and starting to impact her liver negatively. So that could also be what's going on with that. I did not know that whatsoever. Can you repeat that for my audience, please? Yeah, so basically people, and this is if she is one of those people that's insulin resistant. If she's insulin resistant, basically every time your body is getting sugar, it's producing more insulin to try to drive that insulin, excuse me, drive that sugar out of the blood vessels somewhere. It usually kind of ends up going into the liver. It's stored as fat, et cetera. But when the liver starts to get overloaded, if you get uh, going to a fasted state and allow the liver to kind of release some of that excess glucose that's been stored in there is um stored basically stored in the liver um it can cause your blood sugar to go up even if you haven't been eating it's something that um dr jason fong actually talks about when he is treating or trying to reverse insulin resistant diabetes using intermittent fasting so I just wonder if that could be what happened with her, but obviously we need to know, you know, her insulin status and uh, whether she's insulin resistant, whether she has any liver um, kind of adverse or, or liver problems as a result of insulin resistance, et cetera. But again, that could be part of what's happening there. And the one thing I'll say about Lumen, and they're very uh, specific about this, they don't recommend it. And uh, administer, administrator, um, for them, it's very specific. They don't recommend it for anyone who's insulin resistant or have diabetes. Oh, okay. And, Interesting. Yeah. And the reason why is because the sugars in your in your cells are different than watching your blood and so on right. and so forth. Exactly. And it's hard for your body to read that, right? So gotcha. um, you may be producing more CO2, but there are other things that may play in a part of it that 
taking a general approach like that may not be the best thing for you. Not saying not everybody listens. So I don't know if right, that's right. the case. <laughs> <laughs> but they do they do say that for that reason. But if you're not insulin resistant, um, especially if you're not diabetic, um, this is a really good product. Again, code Zico Health. Go Lumen. This Lumen.me is the website. And uh, go get your discount and take a look at it. Join the group. I'm in there all the time answering questions for you. Okay. Now, outside of that, because um, we were still we're still talking about women, so I'm still on that topic. What are some general things that women can do at the start of their journey to help them on the road to success? So some general stuff. So just um, very general. Um, basically, one thing that I always recommend is you start with um, lifestyle modification, obviously. Basically, you try to eat lots of green leafy vegetables um, or berries, richly pigmented berries and vegetables and things of that nature. I think if you focus on that and prioritize vegetables and protein, um, that is kind of one step that helps to kind of get you on your way to not just weight loss, but overall health, because you get all your micronutrients, you get all the protein that you need to be able to build muscle. And the next thing is basically remain, you know, try to incorporate physical activity. I think um, American Heart Association recommends 150 minutes every week. Um, so, you know, you can do split that up over three days or so and do, you know, either not just uh, like weights, um, weight training, uh, walking, uh, jogging, cycling. Those are some good examples and um, kind of really easy things to implement. Um, the other thing is, so once you get your nutrition under control, you have your um, regular physical activity. I think you also need somebody to kind of keep you motivated, somebody to keep you kind of on track, like a, an accountability partner. I always recommend you get an accountability partner um, so that on those days where you just don't feel like eating right or you don't feel like exercising, you can always reach out to them and lean on them for support. So you have your diet, you have your physical activity, you have your accountability partner, make sure you're drinking water. Your goal is to drink at least a meal or a CC for every calorie that you burn. So if you're trying to, um, if you burn or your resting energy expenditure, well, no, not even your resting energy expenditure. If you burn, let's say 2000 calories a day, then you want to drink two liters of water. Um, the other, the final thing is you need to sleep. You need to make sure you're getting at least, uh, seven to eight hours of sleep every night. Um, sleep is extremely important. Sleep is the time when the, the cells and your um, muscles, everything is sort of regenerating and healing. It's also the time where your hormones go back into balance and hormones that are um, there for growth and uh, basically growth, muscle growth specifically our highest, you know, at the end of sleep, basically. So sleep is extremely important so that you don't disrupt the hormone balance. And so you give your body and your cells time to heal, basically. So eat right, move regularly, have an accountability partner, make sure you get some sleep. I'm Narado Powell and I approve this message. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you started out by saying eat right. And I was like, I was thinking about um, the rainbow, you know, like mm. eating uh, the rainbow. 
And uh, of course, you know, that means eating different fruits and vegetables, different colors, because they have different nutrients. And that's how I think about Lucky Charms. And I'm like, you know, Lucky Charms, the cereal says, chase the rainbow. But I'm like, don't chase the rainbow. Eat the rainbow, but not the Lucky Charms rainbow. Not the Lucky Charms rainbow. You want to eat richly pigmented vegetables. So you want to get your reds, your greens, your orange, your purples. Um, get all those in and try to, you can even make it like a challenge and try to either try a different fruit or uh, vegetable or berry every week or, and make sure you're trying to get at least five cups of veggies and berries every day. Um, that could be a great starting point to transitioning or switching, um, switching up your lifestyle, transforming your health, et cetera. But if you eat the rainbow and eat all the, you know, the different color veggies and don't rely on the beige processed foods, then you're already on your way to transforming your health, literally. So powerful. So powerful. Now, we're just about at the hour. Um, thank you so much for being here with me because you've taught me some stuff in this interview, too. I'm going to go back awesome. and listen and start taking some notes. Um, but how can my audience get in touch with you? So right now I'm actually transitioning um, and uh, sort of upgrading my website. So the website's not available just yet, but it will be www.drtanya, that's D-O-C-T-O-R-T-A-N-I-A.com. Yes, that's correct. Uh, it's coming though. So for now, you can meet, uh, find me on Instagram at Dr. Tan Dr. Tanya. So it's at D-O-C-T-O-R.T-A-N-I-A. And I will share my Calendly link with Narado so that he can, you know, he can share it with his audience. But also, if you are interested in a 15-minute uh, nutrition counseling session, a free kind of, it's an assessment and, you know, just kind of a, an initial session to see if we would be compatible to work together for nutrition counseling. I primarily uh, help people to reduce inflammation, to increase insulin sensitivity, to reverse things like prediabetes and type 2 diabetes, and also um, do some counseling to help with mitochondrial health for patients who suffer from certain musculoskeletal diseases, specifically, you know, fibromyalgia, muscle sclerosis, muscular, uh, excuse me, multiple sclerosis, um, so those are some of the conditions that I usually counsel on to treat with nutrition and lifestyle modification. So I love it. Absolutely love it. Thank you so much. And I will make sure that her links are available in the show notes and the show notes will be in the description of the podcast. I think the show notes are going to be zikahealth.com slash Latanya B. Keep it simple. And um, so I'll make sure all the information is there because I, uh, She's a wonderful doctor. I've known her for years now. She's taught me a lot. I've read her blog. I've um, followed her. I've followed her Instagram, and you know, I've I've learned a lot just in this show. So take a listen, reach out to Dr. Tanya, learn more, improve your health, and let's crush 2022. And by the way, by the time this episode comes out, I believe our website is going to be up as well. So that's going to be perfect. I can put those in the show notes as well. So thank you, Dr. Tanya, and. Uh, Enjoy the rest of your day. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Can't wait till next time. Next time. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Zico Health Show. If you got good quality content out of this episode, save, subscribe, 
and share it out there with family, friends, co-workers, or anybody who needs to hear this information. Remember, always take the scenic route and enjoy the ride.